Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Mark Budria. He's the VP of Science and Technology at Hypergiant. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Kevin? I'm very well. Yourself? I'm doing pretty good. That's Enjoying awesome. A nice, cool day. Yeah, yeah. You're in uh, Austin, correct? Yes. Yeah. Austin, Great Texas. city. Great city. <laughs> I've been there a couple of times. Always had a blast. <laughs> but uh, I. Maybe before we get into all the stuff that you guys are doing at Hypergiant, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure, sounds great. Uh, all right, so I I was born in southeastern Massachusetts. Uh, okay, city named Fall River, um, but I, I and I still have a lot of family in southeastern Mass. Sure, but I grew up most of my life in New York. Uh, okay. Just north of the city in the Hudson Valley. Okay. Uh, and and uh, spent about a number of years there. And then, you know, I lived up in Albany and Schenectady for a while. And then uh, moved out to Adventures West. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. Um, so you have kind of an interesting um, take on post-secondary education, university. Do you want to talk about that journey and what you what choices you made, and and then let's get into your career right after that. Does that sound good? Sure, sure. Well, I, I always like to tell people that uh, the one thing I'm super qualified to do in a lot of situations is tell you what not to do. I've probably made <laughs> That's those good mistakes. advice. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, I've definitely taken the path less traveled. Okay. Um, I got out of high school just went to a local community college for a bit and you know my, my interests were just always varied I grew up in a very lucky to have be exposed to a lot of technology very 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 early more so than most okay very uh, cool. And, and that sort of scale on top of that um, so while I fought going into the sort of world that I'm in now okay um, interesting you know, so I, I got out, did a little bit of time in school, and, and then I was working professionally in the photography industry, Okay, uh, actually, and uh, that's kind of where my back, you know, a lot of my technical background sort of started is in the, not necessarily in the taking of pictures, but in the processes that surround them and the darkroom processes and manipulation of light and image and everything else. Sure. Uh I started a lighting company okay. with uh, a few people and did lights in the sort of underground and uh, club scene in New York City and, and all over the Northeast doing shows. And that, that evolved into, yeah, you know, it, 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 I have a lot of stories to show for it. Uh, sure. That's about all I have to show for any of that life. Um, <clears throat> and then I kind of spent a lot of time doing music things and, and, and in sound design and 
And then I sort of bit the bullet and went and got into kind of tech land. And so I, I started many, many, many years ago and, you know, you were either a software person or a hardware person. And, uh, I started life out as a hardware person and working on mainframes and supporting banks and networks and that evolved into network engineering. And, you know, through all of that, I, I was, was annoyed that most of my peers didn't quite understand like how the operating system worked and how the compute, like the software side of it worked and people I knew on the software side really just didn't, weren't really on, you know, too hip on, on a lot of the hardware issues. So sure. I kind of moved into it with a good friend of mine and, and him and I just dove into the coding thing and, you know, we sort of backed into a lot of this stuff I mean, Back in the early days, it was a lot of looking at, you know, decompiling an executable and staring at assembly language and just trying to make sense of it all. You know, granted, yeah, you go to school and learn to a lot of that stuff, but that just wasn't for me. So everything that sort of evolved over the years through this has just been experimentation. And and in fact, my career has really spent most of my time in the R&D space, um, just trying to make things say hello world. And <laughs> and through all of that, you know, awesome. math is a thing, and AI has been a thing for a really long time. Very, very little of this is any was new. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, we were using machine learning algorithms, you know, back in the early '90s to do synchronization of sound and, and music and visuals to beat, uh, and just to have cool stuff. Now, that's a fun and not necessarily industry use case, but understanding how to use that tech, you know thing so it's all sort of evolved through that and then you know finding my way to chaotic moon um and and to ben and and fremont and 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 wombo uh was probably like (laughs) the single biggest change in my life okay very cool (laughs) recent memory i mean and whirly and you know just that whole crew that was a really magical time and and they, they, you know, accepted a rogue into their midst and uh, <laughs> leveraged its its power ever since. And and there's nobody else that I'd rather be around <laughs> at this stage in my career. It's not sure. about the money, it's about uh, the people I work with. No, that's very cool. So walk us through what you guys do and why do you say that? Because You've obviously done a ton of stuff. You've worked with a ton of people. And when you find those people that you basically can create magic with, it's so rare that you're right. It's the money just doesn't matter. I agree. It just, it changes the game. Yeah. No longer are you just trying to like tread water and, and do the task at hand. It's okay. We accept that we've got this pool of ability now. Like it's sure. become the norm. There's nothing that we can't go tackle because we're going, we never attack anything from a single point. It's always from, you know, four or five points uh, of attack and everybody has a different skill to bring to bear on it. And when you find leadership that, that a recognizes the strength of that um, and B the people who embrace that, like it's a really powerful experience. I, I think 
all too often, you know, you're hired into a role in a lot of companies and they, they pocket you away because that was how things were done in the forties and fifties and sixties with sure. operational efficiencies and blah, blah, blah. But you, you lose the essence of why we hire anybody at any business and the business has problems to solve. And so pro- no problem is very ever solved from a single direction. Sure. It's not a solution that's from a single direction. It's a proven hypothesis from a single direction. So finding that and working for them is very empowering. Um, and, you know, I can't do any of what I do without the amazing people around me. I'm, I'm no, that's, <laughs> no, that's that's very interesting. So b- before we dive a little bit deeper into uh, what exactly your role is, what exactly does Hypergiant do and uh, what made you actually start there with them? Other than what you kind of just mentioned, great people. But there's got to be you got to be passionate about the work as well, right? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. You have to. And I think at some level. And I think everybody has some level of comfort in it, but like doing what we do, being sort of agnostic problem solvers. Okay. Uh, let's start there, right? So there's Hypergiant, Hypergiant, Hypergiant Industries underneath that Space Age Solutions, which is essentially what we're talking about. But Hypergiant Industries is Space Age Solutions, Sensory Sciences, which is a whole different group. Dave Copps and his team building an amazing piece of technology. Um, and then we've got galactic systems uh, doing satellite stuff and work in space and, and various other things. And, and, you know, and the list kind of moves on. That's the, the other thing that we do with Hyperdyne Industries. But from a focus of Space Age Solutions, which is really kind of at the heart of it all, we solve problems for customers. And we solve those problems through two lenses, the lens of machine intelligence and user experience. There are in order to create a stable solution to any problem in business, there are three points of entry, right? You're either solving for a business problem, you're solving for some user, or you're solving for some data. Regardless of which one of those points you start with, you have to solve for the other two. In order to create that nice, stable, sort of naturally occurring pyramid shape. And we do that in a lot of different ways. It takes on a lot of different forms for a lot of different companies. Okay. Um, Hypergiant breaks down into sort of three kind of tiers of effort. And you have the consultancy aspect of it, helping companies understand how do we apply these technologies? How do I make not just an incremental change, but how do I make a systemic change that sets me up for the next hundred years? You know, sure. Um, and how do I get actionable things right now to help justify the costs of being able to do that? Then there's the technology side, you know, and how helping to realize and sort of ossify ideas um, and pragmatic functions into existence. Okay. And then there's the sciences side of things. How can we go attack a hypothesis, go research what's possible? Um, advance something in a way that maybe, you know, wasn't necessarily thought of. And that's kind of one of the superpowers of Hypergiant. Sure. And why somebody comes to us is that because we are agnostic to technology and because we are agnostic to industry, 
it puts us in a unique position to take so much of what we learn from other places and abstractly apply it in a meaningful way to another industry. And, you know, our depth of understanding on the consumer side of things leads to building better oil and gas interfaces. Right. Right. You know, okay. those our understanding of what humans are doing in other places. And, and I think this represents sort of like why Hypergiant exists is because all this new quote unquote new tech yeah. really is a philosophical shift in how you solve a problem, how you set your infrastructure up, how you think about your data, how do you transform that into endpoint experiences? These things are different now than they were even a few years ago. You know, the evolution towards this path was, was happening. But it wasn't until compute power sort of democratized and libraries reached a point of stability and sort of the math matured that surrounded these things and the understanding of it that we're able to actually go and do a lot of these things today that we couldn't do yesterday. Yeah. Sure. No, I, I think that's, that's really great. So, do you want to maybe give me a bit of an overview on, you quickly covered it, but the types of projects you guys have worked on, I know, you, like with what, what you can say, because I know sometimes when you're yeah. uh, deep into a company, you're, you can't even really mention you're working with that company, right? Yeah, I, so I could talk in some broad strokes sure. here. Sure. Um, we obviously are Texas-based, and sure. we would be fools to ignore what's in our backyard. So. Right. A large part of our work is in the oil and gas industry. Okay. Sure. Uh, much of it in the upstream, right? So you've got upstream, midstream, downstream. Sure. We do some stuff on the downstream as well. A lot of it on the upstream. Okay. Um, making more effective task optimizations and assignments uh, for various companies. Okay. Visualizing information in richer ways. Um, doing more predictive uh, data science on the time series data that's available whether it be maintenance, um, completions, optimal completion paths, things like that. We spend a lot of time there. We've got a lot of experience in the sort of quick service restaurant world, um, both on the ordering and in-store experiences. We've got a lot of work in the sort of HR space and things that surround um, hiring and humans and an optimization of things. There are a lot of common threads that run through all of these and, you know, and, and that is fixing user experiences, making things far more usable and with less friction sure. and doing proper data science and beginning to lay the foundations for what a contemporary data stack needs to be uh, in order to enable them to, in, you know, to actually do this stuff repeatably in the future. Sure. No, I, I think that's actually really interesting. And you mentioned something earlier in our conversation that I really want to go back to is this stuff isn't really new. Like you mentioned earlier, you've been playing with a lot of this stuff that has become really popular and for lack of a better term for it, a bunch of buzzwords lately. But some of this stuff has really been around for, for decades now and we're just starting to really have the hardware and software to actually do some of this stuff. But what is your thoughts on the state of kind of AI and machine learning and, and, and even kind of just software development at this point? Because there's so many things and buzzwords floating around nowadays. And it's like, well, 
some people are saying they're doing this stuff or like, oh, we're look at all this AI we have. And it's like, well, is it really AI or are you just calling it that? You, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, again, I there is certainly a literal definition of AI. But at sure. the end of the day, AI is a very broad term. It's not a singular thing. It's a tapestry of things. If we think of a tapestry, if a thing's made of thread, all of the different te- techniques and approaches make up the threads. And you can make a single colored tapestry or you can have a rainbow dream coat sure. tapestry of, of things. So, I mean, like, there are so many things that are not necessarily new that sort of fall into, like, you know, computer vision. Computer vision has been around a really long yeah. time. I mean, the, the conveyor belt sorting thing, not new. You know, that's, if you go to pretty much any sort of embedded industrial conference, you'll see 15 of them. Yeah. Okay. You know, and, and, you, and you have seen them for the last few decades, you know. Sure. I, I think it's really more it's different now is a democratization of that stuff. Okay. Much of the technique in the library available, like even a few years ago, at our, you know, in the past in the R&D team, just because the library on GitHub said it did X, Y, Z, doesn't mean that it did it outside of that lab condition. Interesting. Right? You yeah. use their data set, you use their things, and boom, magic happens. Yep. Now you go to put your data through it, and, and you don't get any of those results. And, and that was a lot of the case sure. in the past. But, you know, early alpha, it's no different working with anything alpha. And I think we've sort of moved a little bit into advanced beta on a lot of these things. But... You know, I think the part that gets missed here is that there has to be a user experience that accompanies these things. Yeah. This is not magic. It just happens on the back end. Sure. Because AI does does one thing really, really well, and that is accelerate chaos from point A <laughs> to point B. You're right, yeah. And so right now, our enterprise is loaded, just loaded with artificial gates to the process. And they're gates because a human could only do xyz transactions a day and issue x number of invoices right like even big 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 giant companies these gates exist they're things and the system is built around those gates so now you go dropping a whole bunch of rpa in and you break down those gates and sure you get rid of some people but now the people that are at the other end of that pipe now have more to deal with or they don't know you know there's no visualization into how many errors is this bot transacting on i, I don't know sure right so interesting you gotta you you can't have there's, there's no removing the human from this the whole talk of all of this is just nonsense and i think that speaks a lot to kind of what's happening right now i think the people that work in the industry and, and kind of live this life look at almost every single news story and are just frustrated because it's yeah agreed things talking about like but but they don't go out and learn on their own right like that's not how the model works it's, it's not how that math works it's not this and and you just get ex- exhausted trying to counter all of that stuff i mean that's why the reality is let's call it what it is machine intelligence yeah now the moment i say that term to you Tell me it didn't draw a totally different vision than when I say AI to you. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, interesting, right? Yeah, you're totally right about that, right? I I think it, in my opinion, it sounds like you're going to agree with me, is it's going to, sure, it's going to automate certain simple tasks and you might, and it might remove some of your workload with those, you know, small tasks. But you're right, you still need a human being to do majority of the stuff and it will be like that for decades if we ever replace a human, right? Yeah, I mean, I... I run into, and not just I, but we as hypergiant, and in my career forever, people with large, ed, you know, educations, and and they're very intelligent. Sure. They have they these could be true knowledge workers. Yeah. But they spend seventy percent of their time copying and pasting to spreadsheets. Yeah. Why do we want to keep those jobs? Why? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Nobody's asking like. So AI is going to replace jobs, blah, 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 blah. Do we want to keep those? Like, is that the best use of a human who has schooling? And, and even if they don't, like, look, good ideas can come from everywhere. Yep. Agreed. You know, let's use the humans to be knowledge workers and, and create and, and deal with the fringe because the machine handles the normalcy, the repetitive task a thousand percent better yep. than human ever will. So cool. Let it do that. It'll also identify the anomalies. Yeah. Awesome. Now let the humans deal with the anomalies. Sure. Now we can build a reinforcement layer where we see if a reoccurring anomaly has a repetitive way of answering it and therefore regress that learning into the model. And so now we have one less anomaly we're detecting. Yeah. And we continue that pattern over time and the machine gets better and better and better but you're never going to get rid of the human. Somebody still has to deal with the shit the human that the machine doesn't know. Yeah. Well, no, you know? and I and, think the and, best is the medical space, right? Like if, if yeah. a human can go through a bunch of x-rays for, or sorry, the machines can go through thousands of x-rays in minutes and pick out, Oh, this person might have an issue that needs dealt with. Then you have a physical doctor look at those issues and it could be maybe 10 or five out of those thousand instead of the doctor sitting through a thousand. Right. Yeah, it just narrows down and says, here, I've looked at a bunch of stuff of this. These are the ones that I find are not noise. Yeah. Now, you, it's the machine's job to detect anomaly and find correlation, never assign causality. Sure. Interesting. And I think Agreed. that's a, a big misunderstanding that, you know, arrives here. And, and a lot of that could be supported with basic education. That's a whole nother podcast. Sure. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, that's actually quite fascinating that you, you bring that up because I think that's the thing is there's, well, in my opinion, in, in a lot of cases, education has little to do, like traditional college degree has little to do with how successful somebody will or won't be in, in their career or in their life. There's people that have been wildly successful with little to no education and people that have the most education on the planet and everywhere in between. It really, in, in my experience, and they don't really correlate in, in a lot of cases. I, I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to just, were you ever taught how to take something from an abstract theory? Okay and make it exist in the real world. Sure. Right? Like, yeah. and make it be a thing. Like, and just that basic act of creation, 
from nothing to something. Sure. Should be what all things are driving towards. Yeah. Because along the way, there's need for specialty and learning and understanding. And, and, and that's a big struggle. We, we just wrapped up teaching a, a class last semester at UT. Okay. Um, designing for AI. It was a credit course. And, uh, you know, it was hard. <laughs> sure. Way more work than, uh, than I expected to be. I, the, the, the other people on the team who, you know, who were professors actually uh, before being at Hypergiant okay. sort of warned us. But uh, the reality is, you know, we went through it. I feel like, you know, everybody got a lot out of it. But the thing that we spend a lot of time doing is sort of breaking down the barriers that education has put into people's minds. Okay. So sure. you're good at math. So you're going to be engineering and you're going to think like this. And, oh, you like to draw. You're going to be design and you're going to be like this. And you like business and you're going to be like this. And the reality is, is all of those things are valid. Yeah. They're not siloed. When you come work for a place like Hypergiant, the first thing we do is smash that all together because that's how a problem is actually turned into a solution. You know, yeah, agreed. And I don't think enough of that sort of project mentality is taught like that. Everything is taught like engineers are going to do their thing. And then that's, you know, our design's going to do their thing and they're going to hand it off to engineering. And then engineers can do their thing and they're going to hand it off to here. And it, that was maybe the way the process was 20 years ago, but that's why we got a whole bunch of utilitarian crap now. Yeah. That's not the way that things work in the agile world. The way that, you know, when mobile applications came around, that really changed the game Yeah, for speed reasons and, and a lot of other reasons. Those, those of us on the R&D side, before mobile came around, were sort of, you know, toying and playing in that rapid, that rapid application development space. But most everything else in the enterprise was very structured and everything was box card. Yeah. You can't be like that. That's that's not the reality of it. So I, I always push against and say, it's not STEM, it's STEAM. Okay. Because the, that iPhone in everybody's pocket started life as a pretty picture, not as a circuit board. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> you can't create technology without art. There has to be, there's going to be a user involved. Somebody's going to have to look at it. And it has to mean something. And it has to fit into the moment of time that they're looking at it and provide information. And not a single role can provide that answer. Multiple roles need to provide it. Yeah, 100% agree. The other thing I'm curious to get your thoughts on, um, I didn't tell you this earlier, but I'm, I work on the design side. I'm actually at a startup up in, up in Canada. I've been kind of doing design and UX and stuff for, for decades now. Um, the one thing Thank that you. I've struggled <laughs> with sometimes dealing with other kind of designers sometimes is they're always trying to design like ver version 87 and you're and in agile there potentially will never be a like you will never get to that version right you <laughs> might get to version 87 but you can't be thinking like you need to build an interface that obviously you can add stuff to or and thinking but if you have the time and budget to build something in 3 months you can't build something from the design side that's going to take you 3 years to implement right like that like, do you know where I'm going with that? Or, or what are your I thoughts totally kind of around that? So that's exactly why from pre-day one, before when we even, when we sit down to even estimate a project, 
Right. Right. So I'm out with business development. We identify an opportunity with somebody. Sure. We bring that back and sort of the heads of state of product strategy, product development, product design, and science and technology sit down and talk through what it is and determine complexity and understanding and, you know, because we're sort of a fixed fee shop. Right. Uh, so our word is our bond in that world. And if we get it wrong, we're not, not in a good way. Yeah. So right from day one or before day one, everybody's involved in that conversation because during that first couple of weeks when we're doing discovery and, def- and defining and mocking things up, the, the solution architect's job is to sort of be gut, the gut check of the, the computer science of all of this. Right. How does this, well, you can't do that because React doesn't allow for that, or we can't do that. How are we going to get this cool th- Python thing that data science is experimenting with? Now, how am I going to make you do that a million times a second? Sure. Yeah. Right? Oh, well, if they architected it like this, well, then I can't do it like that. And if design's trying to do something that doesn't make sense, everybody has to have a voice in it. So that's how we counter it. Yeah. In, in our, and it's just sort of part of the process. Like everybody at any point can sort of hit the panic button and raise a concern. Yeah. I, I, I'm, it actually kind of surprises me at how many, uh, whether it's actually building custom software or people are building their own app, don't actually bring in everybody or at least a couple of people from every vertical in a company into the boardroom and almost argue it out on a whiteboard before any real designs actually done or codes really written because you basically need to all those verticals and you need to come up with a solution that works obviously long term but also immediate and and respecting all the different verticals and the challenges inside those verticals Absolutely. I mean, that basically describes our, our LOE meeting. Yeah. <laughs> they get heated. Everybody expresses themselves and, and then it ends with a hug and we walk out. <laughs> Still friends, but maybe not in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good though, right? When you have passionate yeah, yeah, people healthy that way. arguing their point of view because it nothing's worse than either a designer giving a developer designs and saying build this or a developer building something and say design around this if the two just talked before either one did anything it would have been way quicker better and it would probably cause well it always in my case has always caused less kind of rework on both sides really yeah yeah no it's it the projects that run the best are the clients that are a open to bi-directional communication, meaning yes, they have an opinion, but they are open to hear somebody give them direction to, for us to be consultative to them versus them saying, well, this is the way that we envision it and period, end of story. Sure. Um, Those are the ones that always go to that. Now, you know, as you work in sort of niche, special niche, niche markets, that gets less and less because sure. you know the realities are somebody might know best, but there's when it comes to implement the actual implementation paths and how these things express themselves, you know, this is something we have done in a plethora of over the last few companies. In fact, sure. Uh, 
No, that that, that makes decade. a lot of sense. No, I, I, interesting. So I, I'm curious, though, to dive a little bit deeper into your your thoughts on the industry as a whole, because so many companies these days say we use this technology and we'll just kind of for they never say this outright, but we'll make it work with whatever technology you mentioned earlier that you guys are very well, it sounds like you guys will pick a technology that fits the problems you're trying to solve than trying to mash the problem into the technology that you guys have picked, you know, a long time ago. Exactly. I don't, we don't ever walk into a room with the pitch of, boy, do we have a tech for you <laughs> without even having talking to them. Now, there are plenty of large system integrators that are very, very large publicly traded company. Sure. They'll, they'll spend hours having a pre-meeting about where we're going to go in and settle this customer. Yep. And, and I worked for those people. And, sure. Well, and I, I would sit in the room idea. and go, but they haven't, we don't know anything. Well, we know their business. I'm like, I get it. You do their BPO. Yeah. That doesn't mean, you know, so why can't we just have a conversation? They're human. We're human. Do that. And, and, you know, they spend all this upfront time trying to do it. And, you know, the hypergiant approach is, is a very organic sort of thing. And the reality is, it's, where is your pain? Yeah, interesting. There's, there's not anything I can't help you with that, that you don't have money for anyway. But let's just talk about the pain. Let's, let's leave out a particular solution. It's more of a counseling session right now. Sure. Talk, you know, and let's empathize and get an understanding because We've experienced tons of pain ourselves. And the moment that I can empathize with you is the moment that I make a better connection with you. Sure. And when I do that, then we have better communication. And then I can get to the root of what your problem is. Because just because you're experiencing the pain in one place doesn't mean that's the cause of the pain. Yeah, interesting. Any doctor will tell you that, you know. Yep. So let's talk through your pain. It's something I've that one of us, I mean, we've got tons of experience collectively that we can draw upon and maybe shine some light through the fog here and, and arrive at something that we can together go attack, right? We're never, we can't do this alone for anything that we do for anybody. We sure. need our clients to, to kind of manifest their ideas. We are here to make them look good, to stand them up, to solve business problems, to show them the light that there is a better way than the way that it's been done for the last two decades. Sure. And in your thoughts, how much client involvement do you guys kind of expect? Because in my opinion, I think a lot of times clients don't realize how much involvement they need to be at least throughout the project, maybe not every day, but weekly or every you know couple times a month or something like that. What's your thoughts on how much uh, time a client needs to be involved in the project? So it, again, it's one of those things that can vary. We, we've got sort of the gamut. We have ones that are once a week sort of touch in. Okay. We are. We know what's being done the next week. We're on our sort of cadence and we're doing our thing. We have others that are part of the daily standup. Okay, sure. Um, and are very involved. Most of our projects, we're working alongside an internal team. Okay. Who, you know, who's maybe standing up an API 
gotcha. as we're building the front end or we are consulting on standing up the API and they're doing some database work gotcha. in, in, to drive and connect to that. So we try and configure and work pretty closely. We have other ones where, you know, it's communal chat rooms and uh, it's moment to moment access to each other right. as well. Okay. So it really depends. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No. So no, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. You're good. Keep going. Well, I was going to ask you recently became the VP of science and technology. So how has your role evolved at Hypergiant over the last, uh, what you've been there almost two years now? Yeah. Yeah. I've been here on day one. Very cool. So yeah, basically (laughs) My life has gotten, you know, early on, it was uh, myself and and somebody, you know, spreading time with my lead data scientist and uh, my head of R&D at that time trying to manage projects and get things done while they were also doing production work. And and I'm out on the front side of the business doing those things. It it was a lot of load. Um, We've really, as we've been able to age and grow up, um, my role's sort of been able to been divided into three. Okay. And so one person, uh, Jeremy Mike Roberts has taken over as the VP of AI. Okay. And then we've got, uh, Daniel Hobb who is taken over as the head of R and D. And so their role lives within the spectrum of vision theory, um, execution. Okay. They're focused on the, the production, the day to day running of the team, keeping things going. My job sits on the vision theory side of things, uh, is paired up as a Daniel and I both, and Mike to some extent too, all sort of also do double duty as solution architects. Okay. And so we, I'm the only one that sort of does the business development sort of in anger, uh, as okay. PK would say. Um, <laughs> it's easier that way for me to be out and say, freeze them all up to kind of focus on the, the day-to-day production of things. Right. So they are far better suited than I Got you. to do that. Stuff. Um, so I pair up with the biz dev team. Uh, and I'm out on the road most of the week. Okay. Uh, helping find business and identify business and scope things and, and bring that stuff uh, back to the teams and help pass on tribal knowledge and help get things estimated. Sure. So you guys have two or three offices in Texas. So currently we have two. We just okay. closed on an office in Dallas. Our headquarters okay. is in Austin and right. we will be standing up Houston offices soon. We have a number of people already working out of Houston. Okay. Um, I spend a large part of my life in Houston. Okay. And uh, I've got, you know, we've got uh, the whole Dave cops team, some of my data, some of the data science team, um, CEO and CTO all based in Dallas. Right. So how do you find and what advice do you give for people that work with uh, remote teams? Because it can be really tricky or it can go really well. It it seems like there's not really a a middle ground there. People either say it's the worst thing I've ever done or it's great. I I love it. And we just make it work. Like where's your stance on that? I fully agree with you. It's, it's the kind of thing that like some people thrive in it mm-hmm. um, and, and others, it just doesn't work for them. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the reality of it. Uh, for us, you know, I, I don't know that there's a single magic formula. It's okay. something that we are always experimenting with. Um, we try and do as much sort of outreach and you know, all hands and company meetings where everybody meets sort of virtually and is sharing and some experience. Um, we, of course, live in our chat <laughs> windows sure. are getting everything accomplished. Uh, I think at the end of the day, when you've got people who are professional and they understand the process, and I yeah. think one of the big, the big mistakes that I've seen, and, and, and I can't say that, you know, I don't know anybody who's not made it sure. is you hire somebody that's remote because you need them for a project and you're really excited about them and they've got a lot of potential. And then before they're actually truly, on board and have spent any time at sort of the home base, they're on a client project. Okay. Interesting. And, and they have no exposure to the processes and, and how things are. And so now you've added the weight of the project on top of the weight of just the stress of just getting onboarded anywhere. And it's a dangerous cocktail that leads to explosion more often than not. Yeah. I, 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 I think agree. documenting that process and spending a lot of time, to sit and understand with somebody and kind of give them a little bit of a handhold through that. I, I, when we've been able to do that stuff, I think that's when we have better examples. And, and I'll spring on Steve Fish recently. You know, it's a, a big part in our desire to get even better at that part. Sure. No, that that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's actually quite fascinating. So you guys... Uh, recently won a couple awards at the Media Excellence Awards. I, I don't know how much you can talk about the actual projects, but if you can, do you want to quickly mention the two projects and uh, why you think an award show like that is actually uh, really relevant to the industry right now? So I can't go too much into the project. Okay, that's what I thought. But I, I can talk about as far as the view of the awards. Look, everybody needs some way to expose the good work that they're doing and you know being out there and putting your name out there and, and getting brought into an award thing and winning that award and even just going through the process of it and being exposed to the other people that you're running against i think provides a lot of good market value and you know anything you can ever do that creates content that you can leverage and slice and dice and, and so you have your sort of slow drip of new content happening and coming out and your name is bubbling up. It's just really important for any business that's trying to get started, you know? Sure. And in tech land, that's really hard. There's a crap ton of companies that all on the surface seem to do the same sorts of things. But once you pry beyond that and awards help kind of pry beyond that, uh, you, you can see that there's something different there. I mean, I don't know a lot of companies that can sit down and build you a mobile application or launch a satellite into orbit. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Let's find me another. <laughs> no, fair enough. Uh <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so in that sense, like Hypergine is a very unique entity in, in what it is. And it speaks to how we hire the people that we hire, the people that make us up are what make us unique. Sure. And it's nice to get awards that sort of call that out. 
Sure. It's also cool, in, in my opinion anyway, to see what other people are doing as well, right? Because it almost, yeah. at least in my case, inspires you uh, maybe, well, to do better, right? And just be better. And, you know, and knowing what other people are best. doing. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's yeah. cool, man. Um, but we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So let's close with uh, mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and uh, Hypergiant. Sure. You can find all of us uh, at uh, hypergiant.com. We've got lots of white papers. Our medium page on Hypergiant is loaded with great content and sort of thought pieces and, and vision into who and what makes up Hypergiant. Uh, you follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Find me on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, yeah, that's about it. I don't, all my socials get funneled to Hypergiant. So. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. And uh, you have a great day, too. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com. And keep building the future.